All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 327. Jason Lingren is with me, and Mr. Athen Kamenti is back. We're going to talk about the sky clock. As people who pay attention will notice, on the 10th of June, uh, we had an annular solar eclipse. Uh, where I was, it was about 80%, but I have no view to the east and even worse, north of east, which is where this all occurred. But a lot of people did take images and video. And as I predicted, you could see that second body, the second sun, the smaller eclipsing sun, whatever that will shake out to be. Probably what used to be called the spiritual or central sun is my best guess at this point, but I am in fact guessing. For people who have followed along, uh, the sky clock is the be all and the end all. And as we go further into this world change, I don't know how anyone denies it. And when it becomes so obvious and you go back to review, my Lord, every time I've grown something in the garden, I was shown the truth. The sky clock runs this joint. Uh, my Lord, one thing after another. But the thing about eclipses is those are change points. Those are markers on the big dial in the sky uh, that say something has completed, something is beginning. Uh, the same is true of comets, though comets tend to be historically have been recorded as malefic, negative events. Right now, we're in hyper change and everyone knows it. The world we knew a couple of years ago is behind us. Uh, and the eclipse that we just had is a significant marker in my view. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very beautiful good morning it is. Let's hope it stays that way. But we are in the 21 year, which uh, we will cover shortly with Michael Hoffman when he releases his sequel book called The Twilight Language. It will basically show everyone what's happened. And it's not the prettiest picture. What's done is done. But nonetheless, it's good to live in a world where so many minds aren't fooled. But let's jump in. Welcome, Athen. Hey guys, it's great to be back. Sorry about the audio. Just paused it for a sec. <laughs> That's okay. You're still in Portugal. And <laughs> as you were mentioning off air, you may become a citizen if you stay there much longer. Nah, it's a joke. Yeah. No, we've been here for a while. They keep extending my visa. So we just stay as long as they'll let us. Yeah. Well, as far as I know, you're living in a place where the food is top notch. So that's a plus. Yeah. Food's great here. People are great. It's very chill. It's an island. Yeah, so we're on the island of Madeira here, and uh, weather's great. It's We're very lucky to be here, especially with what's going on in the world at the moment. It's been very chill here. Portugal's an interesting place, and where I am in the East Coast, so many Portuguese folk, um, a lot of them fishermen historically when I was younger. Um, but if you look at the world history from the acceptable narrative, there was a time when Portugal was on top. It's crazy to think about. It's not that big a place, but that tends to be the way our world goes, right? Look at the size of England. But let's jump in here, Athen. On the uh, 10th of June in 2021, we had an annular solar eclipse. And I want to get your point of view on this. To me, every time an event like this, and I don't care if it's lunar or solar, to me, solar means more. Each time a solar eclipse, uh, the, the weight of what's either occurred or about to occur has increased if it's solar in my view. Feels like we're on, I'm going to make a pun here because everybody knows the eclipse was between the horns of, uh, of Taurus. Feels like we're on the horns of a dilemma and it feels like that money thing is right around the corner where whatever money is going to become is about to happen. Uh, what's your take on the eclipse we just experienced? Yeah, exactly. So Taurus, you know, astrologically, we view Taurus as the sign that deals with resources and then economically, of course, finances and monetary policy and all that good stuff. So yeah, with the astrology, it's um, essentially a new cycle, a new eclipse cycle, um, the solar one being for the year. Um, and so the uh, north node will be, so anytime we have these eclipses, it's next to, you know, it's a newer full moon next to the north and south nodes, Rahu K2. So we look at the transit for those to see how much longer they're going to be in that sign. And so the north node, uh, Rahu, will be there until April of 2022, so next year. And so I would expect, uh, you know, new things to come out of this next six months for the remainder of the year until the next set of eclipses, but really up and through April of next year in terms of new, uh, new economic um, policies, probably uh, new changes there. And um, yeah, like you said, it's definitely a time of transformation and uh, what I would say is new beginnings on that front. Well, immediately after the eclipse, gold and silver, the value started to plummet, bounce up and down, but not basically not increase. Before we came on the air, I checked and gold was down significantly. And this is usually an indicator too, or even if it's not, it ends up being because people look at that and think it has meaning. So it ends up having meaning. 
Um, but let's point out some obvious things here. We're in the year 2021 uh, for people who have not put it all together. Um, and it was one of the ways I knew I, I knew something was right around the corner. The movie 2001, The Space Odyssey, um, which kicked off so much nonsense in our world. You got to remember the fake moon landing followed these ideas. Uh, that's encoding 21. That is the two and the one, the 21 idea. As we all know, our world changed significantly for the first time in the year 2001. Michael Hoffman's initial book uh, told us all about the blackjack year, and that was written way back in the 80s. Um, so people were not fooled. But what people should understand is what comes next. Obviously, what comes next is 22. And that is a master builder number. If I'm not mistaken, you guys can correct me now. They did a funny thing with the Olympics here, right? I predicted before it happened that they were going to cancel the Olympics. And that should have happened in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's picking up in 2022. Do you guys know if that's right? I think it's going to pick up on 2022. And anytime you see the mockery of the gods of Olympus within the Olympic Games, um, it's telling you things. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is if you go back and look how the modern Olympic Games came, you can see there is a year adjustment made. It made all the sense in the world to wait for the millennium to do it. They didn't. I forget what it was, four years earlier or something. So now we're seeing this two-year adjustment. Okay, I got it. The 2020 Summer Olympics, officially the games of the 32nd Olympiad, and also known as Tokyo 2020, is an upcoming international multi-sport event scheduled to be held from July 23rd to August 8th, 2021 in Tokyo, Japan. All right, so I'm wrong. They're calling it 21, but even though I, I misspoke there, um, that tells you even how much more special the year 2021 is. Basically, what's happened here is they've adjusted a year. And I would urge people to go back to look at how the modern Olympics came to be. It's all tuned to the sky clock. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand a lot. And if you consider the story you're told and why they started on this weird year, like four years before three, I forget what it was before the millennium marker, which would have made sense in a normal world. Um, you can see, we just did an adjustment by the year, but let's pull it back around Athen. Um, in your view, what would you add about the eclipse cycle that we just completed here on the 10th? So the completion was definitely in regards to the energy from December. So that was the eclipse in Ophiuchus, like we were talking about in the last show about the medical stuff going on. So that's where we were saying too, that this year is going to be, or this middle part of the year rather, is going to be a shift with this. So I think the energy with all this like medical stuff, the Cornholio virus, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if you guys have to censor that word, but no. <laughs> yeah. So there's all that going on. And I think, I mean, you're expecting that still for the rest of the year, like I was saying last time, because that's, that's how long the South node is in. Scorpio until uh, January of next year, the South Node will leave Scorpio. And, you know, hopefully with a lot of this sort of thematic theme around this, um, this medical stuff. So I think that's really like from earlier, that's really what's culminating. And now we have the new beginning with the Taurus, which is the financial and the material stuff um, for, like I said, for almost the next year until about April of next year. All right. To bring people up to speed, we had Athan on, I don't think it was the last time, but the time before he predicted to the day to the day, I forget what it was, was like, I'm going to guess, and I know this is wrong, but it was like December 14 or something. I forget what the day was, but way before earlier in the year near spring, when we had Athen on, he predicted to the day when the vaccine rollout would be in the area that I am. Uh, we covered this in a past episode. Further, he's mentioning nodes for those who haven't caught on. The nodes are important and they were always important up until science took over our world and told us that the sky clock doesn't matter. We are told that the moon causes the solar eclipse. The moon does not cause the solar eclipse, and you can prove it. I proved it. What's causing it is the node, uh, Rahu. The old Vedic astrologers would, would tell you that. So just let's quickly outline what the nodes are so people understand, Athen. If I'm not mistaken, Rahu is frequently called the head of the dragon, Keto being the tail of the dragon, or the north and south node, which would correspond to head and tail. Yeah, exactly. So North Node Rahu is the head, South Node K2 is the tail. So it's like a demon figure, dragon figure. Um, so, you know, in Vedic is considered malefic energy, challenging energy, uh, deep energy. Um, and so you could see it as that side of like the way you could interpret it through astrology, which is like another form of psychology. 
uh, you can interpret it as that side of ourselves. So the you know deeper um, shadow, let's say, sides of ourselves. So anytime we do have these eclipses, like you said, it's the new and full moons next to those locations of Rahu and K2. So it's activating that. Um, that's typically why it's a very transformative experience. Again, integrating the shadow, integrating that side of ourselves. The North Node top head of the dragon is the part that consumes. So it's the uh, what we're hungry for. We never really get fulfilled. We're constantly eating, consuming. Uh, so it's a lot of the yang energy, uh, the way the Vedics would say. It's what we're pursuing. And what you could also say is our future life path. Um, but in its highest expression, it, it's best expressed as our dharma. If, if you can overcome those shadow aspects of it, then it translates into a much more benefic energy of our future karma, like our dharma, like our purpose and that kind of thing. But definitely the top half, which deals with consumption and yang energy. And then the bottom half, so K2, so this deals with, so like, you know, ex, uh, sort of uh, alleviating waste and, you know, the, the, the root chakra and all these like very primal things. So this deals with essentially where we're in a sense coming from, because it's the path behind us, it's our roots, where we're coming from, but also where we waste things. So where we uh, alleviate waste and, um, and that kind of stuff. So that's the area that we do want to release and let go and make peace with, but it's also the area where we can get sort of caught in our own, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know if this is a family friendly show, but crap. I don't know if that's a, yeah, that's allowed here, but the truth is the truth. Say what you got to say. It is what it is. Yeah, our own, our own S H I T, right? So, so that's where we can get caught up in a lot of that past life karmic energy, and so it is good to be aware of that stuff and release it intentionally. Um, but of course, we get caught up into that stuff too. So, it really is the dragon slash demon side of ourselves. We have to be careful of of not going to any extremes, uh, to be aware of it, mindful of it, and hopefully integrated and healthy. In constructive ways. So for my part, Athen, uh, as far as the nodes and eclipses are concerned, I'm, I'm in lockstep with the Vedic ideology. And by chance, I firsthand experienced a thing that I'm not sure if it I should have, may probably didn't benefit me. I'm almost certain that it didn't. Uh, for those who know, uh, I'm a sun gazer. I've reached a point where, and don't do this, don't do what I'm about to tell you. Without years and years of working up to it, you're going to get injured. Don't freaking do it. I can look at the midday sun now with my naked eyes most days. Um, it takes a long time to get there. But the point I would make is as a sun gazer, I know what to experience on a normal day. When you stare straight into the sun, you ground your feet into the sand or salt water is a very good way to do it. You can feel yourself being energized. You can feel your vibration rising. You can feel clarity coming. You can even detect after the fact that your vision seems to have sharpened. I looked into the sun in 2017 during the full solar eclipse in the United States, and I don't have words to describe. It was chaos beyond chaos. It looked like a million photons of light were just ricocheting every direction. It was a polar opposite experience of every time that I've ever stared into the sun. Um, so I would just put this forward. I view eclipses as negative events, and I don't care whether they're solar. I don't care whether they're lunar. Basically, the foundational thinking that will get you on your way to think and challenge is that the light's being blocked, right? It's a good thing to have light blocked, and that's that's the foundational thing. But as we move away from the eclipse, Athen, what are the big key points that you see coming in our immediate future? Right. So, so with this being, like you pointed out, the North Node Rahu eclipse, the solar eclipse we just had. So that's the consumption side of it, right? So I would expect now for the second half of the year and through April until April of uh, this sort of, um, you know, using. So I think the elites do use the astrology, uh, especially the true sidereal astrology. And the best way they would like the best way for anyone to utilize this, which is probably the way they would utilize it, is to um, really uh, put that yang energy on it to set a lot of intentions a lot of um, you know rituals, a lot of uh, pursuing of energy to incorporate new material, financial, economic, resource-based types of policies, uh, maybe agendas, maybe perspectives as well. So I am expecting that uh, for the remainder of the year for sure. Because like we pointed out with those past eclipses, they're definitely using these uh, eclipses, the elite, and um, this would be the best way to do it. So I think it's a fair prediction to say that's that's what they would do is to use it to incorporate new financial policies and such. 
do you recognize any day? Like if I wanted to roll the clock forward a few days from June 10th, do you recognize any day as standing out in some way as a malefic day or a change point day or anything like that? Let's say within two to three weeks of June 10. Oh, the whole lunar cycle. Yeah. So the whole 29 days starting from when it just started on the 10th. Okay. I've been doing some reading. Um, I've, I did it years ago, but I've gone back to look at what the Rosen, Rosicrucians accept to be correct about the sky clock. And every time I'm reading the Rosicrucians, something in the pit of my stomach tells me I'm being deceived. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because so many of the sky clock like events, you know, you can verify these. I could go get my old 1940s uh, astrological dictionary and I can look up what does Venus mean? What does this And It'll jive, but it feels to me like they weren't giving it away and they were slightly skewing the timing because without the timing, the value trickles away. And the more your timing is off, the less it seems to be worth with result to the sky clock. Now, some of the things that they will put forward is the real beneficial planets for, you know, without special circumstance or other things impinging would be Venus, would be the sun, would be Jupiter as the big three. Um, right now in the sky, for those who have opened up Stellarium and look, I think the, the prominent things in the sky in the early evening would be Venus and Mars. If I'm not mistaken, later at night, Saturn is leading Jupiter slightly. Uh, what do you see with regard to the planets as they exist now and how they went into the eclipse? Right. So right now, uh, Jupiter is in Aquarius. Saturn, so, okay, I'll just say the placement. So Jupiter's in Aquarius, Saturn's in Capricorn. Uh, and these are the ones that are playing a big role, like we were talking about with the Great Conjunction coming into this year. So you're talking about the master builder and that's Capricorn and that's where Saturn is. So it's an excellent time to build things and to set long-term things into motion, like really build a lot of foundations, really build things. So on a personal level, that's great. But, you know, collectively, I would expect this again from the elite to be ramping up a lot of uh, new systems, new structures, new policies to really transform and shape the, um, the existing structures of politics, economics, things like this. The Aquarius side of it, so Aquarius is with future vision. And so that's what Jupiter is expanding at the moment. So this is like uh, you know, humanitarian visions for the future, uh, collective energy. So Jupiter, again, is all about perception. So uh, I was repeating this a lot last year, and I think that's what's really shifted since last year is this whole new change of perception, like we were saying, even leading up to the year, we're talking about you know 2020 be a big year of changing perception. But um, again, what is the perception about the future? You know, and uh, what is your beliefs about the world? Because all of this, we're, I do honestly believe that collectively we manifest things. And yes, there is a reality and that's Saturn. And, and that's showing us right now the limitations we're working with. That's Saturn and Capricorn limitations, the structures. But there is this visionary side. And I think it's very important to pay attention to our beliefs about the future, because I do believe collectively we are shaping that. And so I think that's a very powerful force there. And again, I think the elite through media and through these other forms are using this time period of let's say, sensitive perception changing, you know, to, um, to further their own agenda. But as I always say, like, pay attention to your own beliefs, ground yourself into nature, what is your perspective, and recognize the power of that, because it definitely is a very powerful year for building future perception and structures, which is the polarity between the Jupiter and Saturn uh, expansion and contraction critical points. And I would point out, uh, as far as perception goes, there's been a big change in the last four or five years. Now we've seen the events where the world perception is jacked. Like 2001 is a good example of the world perception getting hijacked. But after that, we saw a lot of locality. In other words, this state, that town, um, gun violence, all these things put in front of local places. But we've reached a point now where the whole world's got skin in this game. So we can pretty much predict that the things that really end up mattering are going to have to affect the perception of the world. Well, one obvious way to see that coming is money, right? Money affects everybody. There's no, very few lives in this world if money doesn't do something that won't be sucked in to the concern, the mental state, or whatever goes on around these ideas. So I'm with you a hundred percent, Athen, that the perception is everything. And this is where we get in the trap, in my view. 
it's very easy to get beat down. It's very easy to think we've lost. It's very easy to think nothing good's ever going to happen for the rest of my life. But if you do that, that is the perception that you were contributing to the bucket of water that is the whole of everyone. I go the other way. And not only do I go the other way, I always use little tricks like always bringing up what's the one thing the powerful elite don't have any truck with? Well, very few people understand that insurance companies are actually bigger than oil companies by leaps and bounds bigger. The one thing they will not insure is an act of God. That is such a critical point. And these are the things that keep me grounded because if I turn on the news, I'll fall into that mind perception that's not helpful that Athen is pointing out. But Athen, right now we have, um, I think the prominent early evening signs are uh, Venus is the evening star and Mars um, shortly behind it. What's your take on that? Because if we want to see Saturn leading Jupiter through the sky, we have to stay up later right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the pattern. So uh, right now the sun's in Taurus, uh, finishing up, like we're saying, the eclipse cycle. Uh, Venus is in Gemini. So then she'll rise next. And then uh, Mars is in Cancer. So they're like all kind of staggered rising like that. So yeah, this is, again, we talked about the Taurus side of it, the Venus with the twins with Gemini. um, This is a really good time of getting information, getting informed. Gemini is all about, astrologically, it's all about information, synergizing information and talking, like just getting out and having a conversation and sharing ideas. It's such a good time for this. There's so much to be gained, both in terms of giving and sharing of information with Venus here at the moment. And then Mars and Cancer is like good to like, you know, right now just to create a protective environment for ourselves, like nurture, care for ourselves. There's a bit of sensitive energy, most certainly at the moment. Uh, so Mars and Cancer is, is a reminder of that. And I do want to elaborate on something you were saying too, about like marching to the beat of our own drum and like, you know, Jupiter in Aquarius is very much about challenging the status quo. So now that Jupiter is in Aquarius, along with that importance of perception, like it's so valuable to also see that it's a fantastic time for challenging existing structures in in constructive ways, right? In constructive ways, I want to make that clear. Um, And especially because Saturn is squaring Uranus, which is the ruler of Aquarius. So what that means is that the square is a challenging aspect. It's a clash, let's say. And so Saturn, again, in Capricorn's the structures and Uranus is freedom and change and individuality and challenging the status quo. So it is a very important year. We just had this square um, earlier this week. It go exact actually on on Monday at the time of this recording. Uh, But uh, this is an excellent year for uh, building things like we're saying, but in such a way that is challenging existing structures. And um, it's going on all the way through December. Um, It's good to see constructive ways of being our true self, seeing how we're all a unique spark. We all have a unique role to play uh, in this greater system and, um, you know, reclaiming that and, especially with Uranus and Aries, because Aries is about initiating things and it's fiery. It is also in its highest expression, fighting and war and those kinds of things, but in healthy expressions about individuality and independence. So it's, this is, seems to be a recurring theme this year around freedom and challenging the status quo in hopefully healthy ways. What about the January 6th thing that happened? Was there anything uh, significant? Because they're still trotting that out almost on a daily basis on the news about how huge of an event that was and how it almost brought down our democracy and other horse feathers. Yeah. Honestly, personally, to me, it just looked staged the whole thing. I think a lot of it was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, I would expect this to still happen. I mean, a lot of like it's, it is happening, but the important ones aren't really talked about. That's the thing. Like there's a lot of States like starting to like pass some different laws and stuff. Like there's a lot of like, individuality and like change and freedom types of movements happening. Um, but not the ones mainstream. I think the ones like on the news and all that is stage stuff usually, but, but yeah, it's like that. And I, I would expect it to be a very important year for these kinds of things uh, to help uh, make some changes in the world globally. Yeah. I would point out um, to everybody listening when Athen was just speaking, he talked about things being squared what degree is a square? It's 90 degrees, right? Those are the angles of sorrow. The people who followed the sky clock were never fooled about what an angle of sorrow is. And this is how you relate it to the sky. But like right now, Athen, with uh, a supposed beneficial planet like Venus right up early in the evening and Mars right behind it, I guess a lot of people would think that's malefic. Do they cancel each other out in some way when, when people look up in the sky right now and they're trying to work out as they learn the sky clock? 
well, I've looked up in my dictionary that Venus is mostly beneficial and that Mars is mostly not. How do you feel like that plays out for the average person starting when they're looking physically at the sky and they're considering these two almost polar opposite planets? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I would view them myself. So you mentioned Venus and Jupiter. I'm sorry, Mars, Venus and Mars. Right. I understand. But, but earlier you're saying Venus and Jupiter is being like the brightest. Okay. So those are the benefics. So they're beautiful, right? So these are the energies that are easy to work with. Now, of course, we want to make sure we don't get caught up into any ideals and dreams with things being too easy or too beautiful. Obviously, there's challenges with everything. Uh, but those are the easier to work with ones. And then, yeah, Mars and Saturn are considered the malefics, so more challenging to work with. And each of them have their polarity. So we talked about the Jupiter and Saturn polarity. So Jupiter being expansion, benefic, Saturn being contraction, malefic, same exact thing for Venus and Mars. Um, so Venus is the benefic and deals more with attracting things. It's beauty, it's feminine energy. And then Mars is more about pushing. It's a masculine energy. It's fiery. It's more difficult to work with. So I think every planet has its polarity. They have easy and challenging or benefic and malefic aspects to them. But I think it's great to start off by recognizing their inherent nature. And I think Venus's inherent nature is to attract, to, to appear at least beautiful, to attract things, whereas Mars is just simply just going after what you want, even in a grotesque fashion, if it needs to be, you know, again, the God of war and all this kind of stuff. So, so in its inherent nature, you know, Mars is definitely more malefic and that, and knowing that helps you work with the energy, because like I said, with benefics, we want to make sure we don't get caught up into the ideals or the easy energy. And with malefics, there is something beautiful about some of these deeper energies to work with, or at least something we can do constructively with these deeper, more intense energies, like is the case with Mars. So I think one of the key things I'd like to ask you to get your point of view is years ago, I read The Light of Egypt, which so many of the followers here have read, volumes one and two, and they just happened to be one of those times when that one sentence used the right word and something clicked for me. And in that book, they're talking about breathing, breathing the nutriments of the sky clock. And since that time, I've read a couple different versions of it, but I've practiced this for a long time in my breathing now. The idea that I can zone in on, say, Jupiter, which has a close relationship to my birth anyhow, um, and I can breathe in my breathing exercises the nutriments of Jupiter. Or in this case, if I wanted to go out in the early evening and I was staring at Venus, even though Mars was right there, that I can key in and say that my intention is locking here with Venus. Um, do you feel like that's a human capability to go out? I mean, it's almost like I'm picking and choosing because let's face it, if I'm looking at Jupiter right now, Saturn's right to the right of it. If I'm looking at Venus right now, Mars is right to the left of it. It's almost like the polar opposites are in the sky right now. My question to you is, do you feel like with my human intention, I can zero in on, say, I wait up and I want to zero in on, on uh, Jupiter? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, go to what you're guided to go to and your intuition or, or just your natural self is guided to. Because these are, like you were saying, like Jupiter's prominent in your chart, in your astrological chart, just astrologically speaking. So there's an association, there's an energy connection, and maybe that's what's needed at that time is to zone in on that energy to incorporate it. So definitely everyone go to what, what you see in the sky that draws your fascination and, and attraction in that sense. Like for me, it's Mars. I don't know why, but it's like something about that red color, you know, so incorporating that energy, being with it, breathing with it. I mean, this is all part of actually stargazing and just being out in nature. You know, it's no different than going and sitting on a lawn or next to a tree or something. It's literally the exact same thing, you know, involving the stars. It's just, we don't get to do it as often, but I think it's super important to do it. There's so many things like I, right now I've got some ideas that a longtime member here, S frog has submitted. Ironically, the day he emailed me, I, it had just been on my mind thinking about basically a version of the things he laid down based on his interest in some of the writings on the cell salts, the inorganic minerals that pair off with the sky clock in the perception of many of the folks who have written books like salts of salvation. I think Dr. George Carey being one of the co-authors, I hope I have that right. I've got so many books I get lost. So I want to just cover some of the things he's put in. There's another thing I wanted to cover later and I don't want to lose it. But anyhow, here goes. This is, let me see if I can scan this. We burned a couple emails between us, but here's one of the things he asks. We're told by astrologers that we all have one sign, one zodiacal sign. 
But why don't we all have several? The ones that are missing from our gestation period, the same as described in Carrie's Salts of Salvation, and those two, three, four, or even five that are not our strengths and our weaknesses. So if I'm reading what he's put here correctly, my perception of the sky clock changed with the idea of the zygote that Kurt Kallenbach brought. Because I instantly realized that at the moment I came to be is important sky clock moment for my life in the same way that I took my first breath. So now we have nine months, give or take, of gestation. So his question is, how is it that we end up with one, one sign when isn't it true that each of the signs during that period start to become important? And as he's asking here, these are weaknesses, aren't they? Or are they strengths, the, the influences during gestation? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So there's two fronts with this. So first of all, there are other signs. Um, it's just in the mainstream, they like to, again, oversimplify things. So in the West, it's the dominance, your sun sign, you know, everyone knows. And then the East, it's your moon sign. But all the planets or, you know, luminaries, they're all in different, in front of different constellations. And these all represent astrologically different parts of your psyche. So they're just as important to know in terms of integrating your strengths and challenges. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all the luminaries in the sky all contribute to the personality. It's not overly simplified into like just your sun or moon sign, for example. Uh, in regards to the zygote thing, like I totally agree. The challenge with that though, is that getting that exact time of inception, right? Uh, we have no way of really doing that. We we're talking about that on one of the previous shows too, that if there was a way to turn it at least get it within a couple of days, that would be very helpful. But yeah, that is that would be, in my opinion, the most important chart if you could get that time. I just have no idea, you know, how to do that. And that's, you know, I think the main reason we use the birth time because it is still valuable. Uh, but I would say if it is possible to get the inception time, that would be obviously the ideal. That well, that could be one of the things that we've led astray. So I've actually had emails from women who've had children who say they know the moment they became pregnant. Yeah. I would point out if we were a culture who appreciated the sky clock, it would be a lot more commonplace for people to be concerned with trying to mark that date. But you were about to say something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we would be. We'd be much more in tune to our bodies and like those certain time periods. Yeah. Um, the other thing is like so during the gestation time period you know, so it's nine months. So let's just take the sun, for example, like all the planets are going to be, or all the luminaries are going to be moving through the sky, right? During gestation period. Um, but what's interesting about the sun in particular is that it's going to move through nine, well, more like 10 because of where it starts, but nine or 10 signs, constellations throughout that process. Uh, so that can actually show you a lot about like the development of that particular sign. So if you were to look at an astrological wheel, um, you would basically just be taking the 10 signs before your sign, and you would be viewing that as an evolution of your growth process. And again, each of the signs or constellations are aspects of life. So they're representing a sort of growth potential or strengths and challenges you know, to work with. Um, but in terms of like development, they really are like steps of development along the way. Like you go from one to the next and you're evolving and growing. So you can get a very good idea of what your evolution is by looking at the 10 signs preceding your sun sign. And you can even see during which months of your birth uh, or of your gestation, rather your um, what you were developing, which then led to that birth sign that you're born with. Because again, they're all streaming and merging. And so you're evolving from one to the next, the next, the next, and then you're born with that in this case, the development of all nine or 10 of those signs. So I just realized that as usual, I'm not doing my job very well. He made such an elaborate chart, which when we take the break on hour one, I'm just going to send it to you, Athen. So maybe you could just review it quickly and, and do a comment. He put a lot of work into this chart and I can't believe, I, I just got so many things I'm feeling overwhelmed, but do you have a tool in front of you? Can you look up a date right now? Uh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Let's go for my birthday, which is December 16, 1963, because S Frog's next, next example uses my birth date. And uh, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, he correct me if I'm wrong. I think it might be S Frog who pointed out that my the, the crow was ascendant, uh, Corvus the crow was ascendant at my birth, uh, which I later went and looked up and confirmed. Um, 
just for the sake of argument, I recently found uh, my adoptive birth certificate. My birth time would have been at 1.30 a.m. in the morning. And what was your birth location? Uh, San Diego, California. So 16th of December, 1963 at uh, 1.30 a.m. in San Diego. Right. So what we'll do is we'll use me as the example. Uh, tell me when you're ready and I'll continue on S Frog submission here. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here we go. For Crow with his first breath date. And just so everyone's listening, I accept that when you're born, that's a damn important, that that's when you're ingesting your spirit, that first breath, you're ingesting so much with that first breath. But anyhow, for Crow with his first breath date of December 16, he grew up being told his sun sign was Sagittarius. As he learned to look up at the sky, it then became Scorpio. As he learned more, it then became Ophucius. But if Crow's first breath and creation are then placed on a zodiac wheel, it becomes obvious that he has not one sign, but five. Sag, Capricorn, Aquarius are his primary weaknesses, according to S. Frog's uh, evaluation, with also Scorpio and Pisces as minor weaknesses. I've left Ophucius out and lumped them into Scorpio as Ophucius doesn't have any similar attribute that he's aware of. So you're looking at my moment of birth. Can, can you comment from your point of view? And let's, let's get one thing straight here. These are people who were not sky clock studiers. In other words, they didn't learn the tropical. They did this by observation and reason. And in the case of S-Frog, he was one of the key players that helped us work out what's true about the equinoxes. But go ahead and, and make your assessment, Alvin, please. Yeah, that's exactly. There's a couple of things I would add, but yeah, that's exactly right. So, so you were born during the new moon in Ophiuchus. Uh, so your sun and moon are here. So the sun being more traditionally in astrology, malefic, you're gonna, there's going to be challenges you know, to work with in terms of that. Now, there's also a side of the sun, which is strength. So we could say it's your strength as well in terms of developing that. But that's, I think, is that what S-Frog so said? Sagittarius is, is, is mixed. What did he say? Ophiuchus was more challenging or, or easy? So he, he left it out because he wasn't aware of any similar attributes, which is why he lumped me into Scorpio. So right. to, to redo it, he's saying the breath and the creation are then placed on the Zodiac. It becomes obvious that Crow would be Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius as primary weaknesses in his assessment. And then a couple more weaknesses, because I didn't get enough, um, Scorpio and Pisces are also minor weaknesses. Minor. Right, exactly. So I would see that as a minor weakness because uh, it goes, it's the sun. So it goes both ways. And so that's a fucus. So what he's calling Scorpio is basically where you had the a fucus because they wrap on top of each other, right? So um, that's your new moon in, in a fucus. Do you use a fucus? I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I read it very similar to Scorpio because they're literally the same energy, just different octaves of each other. There's the same energy because they share the same part of the sky. So you know, Fucus is literally spanning the same width of Scorpio on top of Scorpio, and Scorpio spanning the same width of a Fucus on the bottom of a Fucus. So they're literally like eighth house energy, which is deep, transformative truth. Same, similar thing, but a little bit different. And that a Fucus is more about healing and working with, literally working with uh, those deeper dimensions of life. So just to just to really confirm what S. Frog is saying, I mean, he's got it right. So I mean, in my opinion, so you know, the Ephucus being the the more neutral, let's say, and then the Sagittarius is more challenging because that's where your K2 is. Okay. So that's where we were talking about earlier. And that's where your Mars is as well, which is more malefic. But Venus kind of counterbalances that a little bit, but probably not enough to, you know, again, K2 being so powerful there in, in Sagittarius. And then Saturn's in Capricorn. So that's going to be a malefic in Capricorn. Now the Aquarius, uh, I'm not sure where he was getting this. But your Chiron is in Aquarius. Chiron is the healer constellation. Usually not that strong in our personality, but it's your Jupiter and Pisces. So what I would say here is the benefic there is your Pisces. So me personally, or I'd have to ask him like where, where he got the Aquarius energy from. But what I would say here is um, those are your dominant signs. It's a fucus, it's Sagittarius, it's Capricorn, and it's Pisces. Uh, Pisces being the easier or more neutral, uh, a fucus being more neutral, uh, and Sagittarius and Saturn being more challenging uh, energy. 
All right. So here's the strange thing. Um, and I, I'll ask you in a moment, you know, we just listed that Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius are major weaknesses and minor weaknesses in the assessment S frog has submitted here, Scorpio and Pisces. And we should point out that Ophetius lays over Scorpio. So in a moment, I'll ask you, do I have anything good going on that I can put on the positive side? But here's the weird thing about my sky clock from my own perception. Yeah. I used to think I was Sag. I'm firmly in the middle of Sag, according to some of the ways it's done. Then I used to think, well, really, I'm Ophiuchus. And there have been times when I've considered Scorpio. But as I look at my old dictionaries for things that should happen for people born around my date, one of the things is injuries. Now, to me, that's a critical marker. And injury is a big deal. And almost all the injuries that are supposed to be, and which I actually have had, uh, are supposed to be in my thighs, which is a Sagittarius idea. As a matter of my earliest big injury, uh, I ripped open my upper right thigh. And so it's strange to me because I can see these crossovers in real life that are trying to be Sagittarius. And yet, like all of us, we're saying, well, what's actually observable? But if I was going to ask you, uh, what are the positive Notes. So we've listed basically five weaknesses, two of which are minor weaknesses. Are there some positives going on that you can explain? Well, uh, S Frog's philosophy, because Rose, so, uh, she sent me the email that S Frog sent. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And so he's, he's coming from the philosophy that wherever a planet is, is, is a weakness. Um, and so it's the philosophy that we're born with these weaknesses and we're here to develop them into strengths. So anywhere, you know, so according to that philosophy, anywhere you have a planet is going to be a weakness, uh, whether it's major or minor depends on its placement, but it's going to be a weakness to overcome and develop. If so, so in that sense, that's just, every, that's just where you have planets. So everybody, wherever they have planets, we're going to interpret it the exact same way as weaknesses that can be overcome in, into strengths. If we were looking at this from just a traditional astrological perspective, which is you have easy and challenging placements, <laughs> to be quite frank with you, there are a lot of challenging placements in your chart because there's so much of that K2 energy we're talking about. Uh, so all these plants are concentrated between a fucus and Sag. They're right next to each other, right next to uh, K2. So there's a lot of past uh, energy. But again, that's why you're doing what you do. You're helping illuminate things and bring all this deep stuff to the surface. So that's the strength, right? That's the strength that comes out of that. Um, but also I'd say, you know, benefically, like, you know, your Jupiter's in the sixth house in Pisces again. So just be aware of how much um, potential you can have with your work in your career and also just your overall health in general, because Jupiter by himself can be considered the lucky planet, but it's not that Jupiter is giving us luck. It's just that it's where we can be open-minded. And so because you're open-minded about what you can do with your work and your service and also health-related matters, that's where a lot of benefic energy can certainly come in. I would say that's probably your most benefic placement there, actually, is having that Jupiter in the sixth. But remember, all these can be turned into strengths anyways, and I think that's where S-Frog's coming from. Well, I appreciate the way he's doing this too, because I know in the back of his mind, he's thinking about cell salts and he's thinking, well, where would these be deficient or needed? And I always appreciate this idea. The cell salts, the books have been so invaluable to me, but at the same time, you know me, I'm going to go see what the Rosicrucian said. By the way, I don't trust those guys. They have a lot of, that we can learn and teach, but I don't think they're giving it away for free. And by the way, they're racist, fully, full on racist. White people are better than everybody, and I don't agree with that assessment of God's creation. But to get back to the point, uh, I don't think you're going to meet a luckier life than mine. Uh, I have done so many horrible things in my younger life that should have ended it, and it didn't. And very few times did I even come close enough to look back and think, damn, but I have been very, very fortunate in my lifetime. But he closes this little portion by saying he attached the depiction showing the opening 12 months cycle. And you have seen that diagram that he made. So you're aware of everything we had here, right? Yeah, briefly I looked at the diagram. Yeah. Okay. He put a lot of work into that. So Jason, we're we're getting close and I had to get that in because the moment S Frog sent it to me, I had just been thinking about these ideas. As a matter of fact, I had sitting next to me um Salts of Salvation. Uh, is there anything you want to get in or do you want me to, to, to do the last bit here, Jason? I was wondering, I keep hearing things in the news, of course, about inflation and, and financial calamities coming in the next few years. 2024 is being pointed out. Anything that we should uh, cover on that front? 
Yeah, big picture stuff. 2024 is going to be very important astrologically. So Pluto, the planet of transformation, uh, is going into Capricorn. So, you know, that conjunction we had, which basically started this whole Cornholio thing early last year, is uh, was Saturn and Pluto. So this transformation uh, with structures, which we obviously saw economically and just in general. Um, so it's that kind of a thing. It's not medical. They got, that's from the eclipse, right, with the fucus. So it's not medical in that sense, but definitely a restructuring to systems, more than likely financial. And I, I do give a lot of weight to the financial side of it because that's when Uranus goes into Taurus. So earlier we talked about Taurus being finances and resources. We also talked about Uranus being about freedom and change and, and innovation and so that's where I think there's going to be digital currencies. Me personally, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uranus technology, Taurus resources. I think that's when they're going to be implemented, like widespread, uh, fully. You know, throughout that process. That's a with the full transit of Uranus and Taurus, it's close to ten years, so it does take a while. But I think it'll definitely be the mainstream in terms of incorporation with that. So those two things alone are, are huge. These planets, like you know, luminaries, like I said, don't change signs very often. So it's going to be very significant, you know, just to put it into perspective, like in terms of like Pluto is basically where it is in the sky around the same time as the inception of the United States. So we're talking many, many years, right? Um, So this is uh, very important. And I think it's going to be very significant in terms of restructuring. Like we saw, like, if you think about it during the inception of the United States, I mean, that was pretty much where monarchy completely reshaped into like republics, or democracies, however you view that. So complete restructuring, right? So that's the significance of it. Obviously, it takes time. It's a very slow-moving planet with Pluto, decades, right? But um, but yeah, uh, restructuring to political systems, economic systems, and with Uranus and Taurus, I think um, digital, or what I'm thinking is crypto types of implementations. I, I think what you just said is so critically important. I'll point out to people, you can go back to... I don't know, shortly after 9-11, when Neil Myass Tyson went on his road trip to demote Pluto, there's a reason. Oh, this isn't important. Don't look at this. We're demoting this. Um, Too many people had caught on what a role Pluto was in the actual 9-11 event, um, but I was not aware of Pluto's position during the founding of the United States. And after all, if we're going for this one world pie in the sky, that's the ultimate restructuring. And if Pluto represents that, I think what you just said there is a pretty big deal, Atham. It's huge. In my opinion, it's extremely big. Yeah. Uh, he's been in Sagittarius right now, which has been the transformation of perceptions for many decades, like you were saying, Crow. Uh, but once he goes into uh, Capricorn, it's going to be the actual foundations, the very physical Saturn energy, right? So it's the 3D, it's the physical getting restructured. You know, I just recently, I take care of my mother and uh, she likes to watch news, which I've slowly got her to move away from. But let's face it, the options aren't great. Sitcoms versus news, which one's better? (laughs) I think sitcoms are slightly better. But I saw an ad on TV where Amazon was saying, hey, here's Amazon Prime Day. And guess what day it is? It's June 21. So that falls right on the high point of the solstitial sun. Um, that Amazon is claiming for, I think it's Amazon, Amazon Prime Days. I don't know if people have have followed that, but I mean, things like this, these are just big proofs that what you continually say, the elite follow the sky clock. Uh, Are you aware of Amazon Prime Day? And are you aware that it fell on the solstice? I wasn't aware of the Amazon Prime, but I see this repeated countless times. Like the dates that they choose almost always correspond with some sort of either astrological or sometimes just numerological you know, a lot of times numerological and on movies and all kinds of stuff. So me personally, I'm convinced that they're using numerology and astrology for these dates. Yeah, absolutely. It's no surprise to me. Yeah. I forgot to ask. So in your point of view, am I a Sagittarius, am I an Ophiuchus, or am I a Scorpion? See, and this goes to the whole point that you're actually all these, okay, because that's where the planets are. So you're, that's what I meant by dominant. So you're, you are an Ophiuchus, you're Sagittarian. Your Capricorn and a Piscean, but the sun would be a Fucus. Yeah. Okay. All right. I figured I should just cap it off for anyone who's sitting there looking at the date, working out the things we've talked about. Uh, there was another big thing I wanted. Okay. So if we take, let's take the, the year from June 10 up to the high point of the sun on June 21. Do you see any significant 
occurrence in the sky clock during this period of time that bears mentioning? Um, again, it's, it's mainly the eclipse. I think that's the most important thing to focalize on. So this week, the, the time of this recording, so on, on June 17th here, but this week going into next week, it is a challenging part of the cycle. So uh, of all the eclipse energy, it would be this time now to incorporate the, where there would be probably challenges or the incorporation of those things we're talking about with Taurus, but also two weeks from now, once we get to the third quarter of it. So around the first uh, early part of July there. So the most important thing here is definitely the eclipse. And also, like I said, the Saturn square Uranus. So we're still in that energy of personally creating change and freedom in our life, uh, structure, achieving things, accomplishing things that are going to give us more freedom, gives listens to our excitement. But collectively, we could certainly see some, again, clash, let's say, between the uh, existing structures and those that want to introduce something new and different. All right. When we come back in hour two, I would like to pick up from the summer solstice in and around June 21 down to the winter solstice in and around Christmas um, all the way to the end of the year um, and pick out anything that seems like it's worthy of mention. But one thing I learned from firsthand experience is, and I think that's what S-Frog was about, at some point your intuition kicks in and it leads you to things that you probably wouldn't have been able to logic out and you get into these veins where, to me, uh, these are the times where the most significant discoveries come in. Now, I, I realized as I began to challenge years ago the equinoxes and the solstices that the high point of the sun, which let's see, we're, we're recording this on uh, June 17. So on the 21st, I haven't checked, but I assume on the 21st, we'll do the solstice. From that day forward, the sun has passed the height of its power for this year. Which means all the way down to Christmas time, the sun will be in decline. And it also means that the days will start to shorten and the nights will get longer. Now, I have tried to describe this period of time from the height of the power of sun on June 21 in and around June 21 down to the winter solstice, or I'll just basically say Christmas because people can think about that easily. The spiritual concerns and the consciousness of human lives begins to fall off. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, exactly. It's the height, heightened phase of the conscious cycle. Yep. Secondarily, in a year like 21, this blackjack year, which we will cover at length with Michael Hoffman when we do his book here very shortly, there's going to be big moves that try to play on the fact that people are basically spiritually and consciously falling asleep, for lack of a better way to describe it. But what I had learned is as soon as I became aware of this, I could keep myself from falling to sleep, at least to some degree. It's hard to judge yourself because you're judging yourself. And let's be honest, people's perception of themselves is usually not very spot on. Um, so I'm very conscious of this. But what I'm pointing out is I know as soon as I go past the 21st, I need to be on my best. Um, I don't want to be slumbering off. I don't want to let my, my spiritual concerns fall off. And I always use the example that when we used to all watch network TV, the new programming, words have meaning, new programming always came in fall. Now, the way we get media now is a bit different, but are you going to be able to see, and you don't have to outline them now, we'll pick it up in, uh, in the second hour. Do you think you'll be able to see points in the fall of the power of the sun uh, where we might see potential big moves in our world? I think a lot of them will be concentrated, uh, again, like we've been seeing at the uh, cusp of the year, um, because again, it coincides with the eclipses. And then in that case, you know, the winter, but uh, definitely like every year, um, you know, fall time is the receding energy. It's the going more into the unconscious as we approach the winter. So that is when we're most susceptible uh, for everybody. And actually it makes total sense that that's when new uh, agendas would be implemented in terms of perception, because we are supposed to be, quote unquote, going into hibernation, right? And um, that's where we're starting to become more receptive. Right now it's yang energy. It's the heightened summer, right, for us in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, but as we approach the winter, yeah, we become much more susceptible. Our unconscious plays a more dominant role, right? So our conscious light dims. And so we're super susceptible to things just penetrating the conscious mind and going straight to the unconscious, which, yeah, it's no surprise that the elite would use that time period for that. 
it's difficult to not avoid self-delusion because self-delusion seems to be one of the biggest problems in our world where other people can see things about you so easily that you can't even be told about or convinced of about yourself, um, these egoic ideas. But it is my sense that when I became aware that I was falling asleep from mid-June all the way down to Christmas, um, that I actively tried to do things to combat that. Do you feel like it's possible for an aware mind to maintain sharpness and maintain spiritual endeavors and conscious endeavors? Yeah, I think consciousness is important all the time, but then there's that difference, I believe, between the outer and inner focus. So as we do approach the winter, it becomes increasingly important to bring that conscious light inward. So to maintain the light, but um, recognizing that it is the time of more inward energy. So utilizing it for such right? Whereas summer would be more for action and stuff like this. So yeah, always maintain that light, but uh, inward though, I think that is important for me personally, when it comes to approaching the winter time, doing that inner work, spirituality, inner awareness, things like that. You know, I went back and I had read some of Michael Hoffman's earlier works, and I think it was in one of those, I don't know if it was Downard or Hoffman, it was in and around that circle of thought that there was a claim that a observatory that I'm very familiar with in San Diego actually have been there. It was the biggest 200-inch telescope, Palomar, at some point, that they had done uh, satanic rituals. And one of the things they did was put the 200-inch telescope on Sirius, which is a whole other thing we could get into. Basically, the claim by these very adept occult researchers claimed the reason all the police are wearing a star, that's the blazing star. Jason's pointed out and some of the things he did when we were early on Albert Pike's mentions of Sirius, but what they were claiming is they focused a 200 inch telescope on this star and then projected the light into whatever it is they were doing. At the time I first became aware of that, it didn't mean a lot to me, but after all the telescope work I did, I, I realized because there is an effect. You sit there and stare at moonlight amplified through a telescope for hours and there, there is an effect. But the point I'm making is right now, like if I think about the heart of the scorpion Antares, to me, that's a malefic idea. If I think about Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, and they're not far off in the color hue, um, those are malefic ideas to me. Do you think there's something to that, Athen, being able to concentrate the light of a single thing in the sky clock and then project it in and somehow leverage off it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's energetic. Uh, I do believe we're, we're like receivers. The brain's like a receiver. We're like receivers. So how we're translating that energy. So we're taking in that energy. We're translating it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can tell, like you're saying, by the, by the star itself, whether it's malefic or benefic, just, you can just tell, right? It's like, we're, we're already tuned into this. It's in our DNA, whatever, like we're aware of these kinds of energies and, and it gets transmitted. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing though, you know, in, in most cases, and the first time I read it is in an old astrology dictionary where the guy's pretty even handed and saying, these guys made this claim that this or that star is malefic based on its color. He said he couldn't find proof of it though. And that kind of bothered me because color is cymatics. Color is frequency. Color is proof that there's, you know, something peculiar to make it that color in the first point. But when I think about Sirius uh, the so-called dog star, that's been used in so many negative ways uh, by the occult powers that have worked to take over our world. Uh, you can go back and read the readings of Albert Pike, but when you look at that, it's like a shining diamond in the sky. But if you look at it through a scope and you take it out of focus, it's like a rainbow of color. But the overall appearance is really not that far off. Maybe Venus, as an example, what's your idea about serious being beneficent or malefic yeah so so typically with astrology we, we pay attention to the ecliptic so serious you know being far from the ecliptic there's not a whole lot of literature out on that on the astrological side but i i agree look at it it's it's beautiful like i said it's venus venus is benefic right i would say it is benefic yeah it almost feels to me like it's a power because for everyone listening serious is the brightest star and there's nothing that comes close. Um, now, if you put the full moon in the mix or you put Venus in the mix, now you've got things that can be bright like that or brighter. But as a star or what we call a star, Sirius is by far the brightest. And I've often wondered if it's like a neutral 
a neutral thing that we then leverage our intentions into or something, but I don't think there's any arguing the power of it. And by the way, if you go back to the Egyptian ideas, um, when it rose and all the supposed encoded symbology in Egypt, which much of it is unacceptable. But my point is, is the claim is, is that star was integrally tied to almost everything they did in Egypt, according to what, what we're handed. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Athen, uh, why don't you tell people where they can uh, get a hold of you? Yeah, so masteringthezodiac.com. It's all the resources there, chart calculators, readings for those that want readings. Uh, for your viewers, of course, there's a discount on everything. So it's masteringthezodiac.com forward slash 777. And you can also find me on uh, YouTube at the same name, Mastering the Zodiac. All right. To be clear, he gives readings. The 777 is like a discount code. Um, and I chose Athen for a reason um, because he uses the sidereal method. In other words, I don't think it can be argued that what we actually see when we look up isn't critically important. But in closing, I'll just say this, and maybe we'll open up with this. Here are the Rosicrucians again, which I've been reading for a couple weeks now, made the claim and this is where I think they're, they're purposely leading us astray while they're using solid logic to do it. They claim, well, if the sun or anything is this many degrees off the equator, we have found that it tends to mean what it meant when Aries was, you know, the primary mover and shaker, number one in the sky. And while I think the logic of that is probably sound, in other words, a thousand years ago, if the sun was this many degrees off the equator, would it be a similar idea or energy level? But this is where I also think that they're purposely shuffling people away from the sky that actually exists over our heads. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 327 to a close. We're going to take a short break and come back for hour two with Jason Lindgren and Atham Comente exercising sidereal or the sky we see styled astrology. There it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs> <laughs>